3: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to a new episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to talking with two authors today about their book titled The Sea and International Relations, just out from Manchester University Press. This is an edited volume um, which takes seriously the idea that we should probably think about the sea, the ocean, in our work on international relations. Um, I personally was quite surprised that we don't already. um, And yet, as soon as I read this book, I was like, oh yeah, actually, you're right. We don't generally think about it. And after reading this, I'm personally quite convinced that we probably should. So I'm pleased to have with us um, the two editors of the book, as well as obviously chapter contributors um, themselves. And so we have with us Dr. Benjamin de Carvalho and Dr. Halvard uh, Lyra, to speak about their book. Welcome the both of you to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you very much.
2: Could we start off, please, with a bit of introductions from yourselves, um, including explaining why this book and why together? Um, Halvard, could you maybe start us off?
3: Yes, uh, my name is Halvard Leira. I'm a research professor at NUPI, the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, as you say, where I jokingly like to say that I do work on whatever people pay me to do work on. So the the, the glib. Verse answer to your question is that uh, we wrote this book because someone paid for us to write this book. Now, there's a longer
1: and better explanation for that, but I'll leave that to Benjamin. Yeah, so I'm Benjamin De Carvalho, um, also a research professor at NUPI. Um, my interests have tended towards the, the more historical parts of, um, of international relations, uh, whatever there is to research, I tend to try to see the long history of it uh, i guess that's something Harvard and i have in common which is probably why we we've done this together we've tended to find it more um more fun more interesting to work together on on these projects and um why this book um because it's part of a, a broader project um a project which we've uh, shortened Emprise, which stands for Empires, Privateering and the Sea. So the project started uh, a long time ago with us thinking about privateering, largely because we thought privateering were cool. They were kind of like pirates, but no one had really, or no one, of course, someone had, but very few people, at least in IR, had looked at them. And it took us a few years before we understood how to treat them or how to make sense of them. And it was only in sort of seeing the importance of privateering for our conceptions of sea and land and the distinction between them and for the broader questions of states and empires that we finally managed to make sense of how we were to approach privateering and got funding for this rather large project on trying to tie the three uh, together, em- empires, privateers and the sea. And so the book is the first book in that project, and uh, we're obviously quite happy with it, especially the cover, which you can't see when you hear us, but uh, we're looking forward to a conversation.
2: Wonderful. Um, Thank you both for introducing yourselves and um, how this goes together. It's always nice when you have two authors to kind of hear about it being a positive working experience together. Um, So to get into the book a little bit, uh, the book has three main themes. How did you choose them? What are they? Introduce us to this. Benjamin, can you start us off?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, Of course, as you say, um, when someone tells you, well, I.R. hasn't looked at the sea, then the answer is usually, well, they have. And uh, to some extent, that's true. Um, You see the sea treated in a few classics about geopolitics. There's, of course, a whole literature on maritime security. Um, There's a literature on maritime governance. There's a a lot of of studies taking the maritime into account. But they, in general, I would say they're not trying to theorize the sea as part of the broader theoretical framework of international relations. And so what we did was we tried to see what had been done by international relations scholars, uh, and in, uh, in, uh, related disciplines, such as, especially geography. Uh, and on the basis of that, we tried to sort of tease out some, some broad themes, which we uh we saw those those uh, treatments to have in common uh the first being uh the the idea of, of taming the sea of mastering the sea uh the idea there is that the sea is this uh this force that needs to be be tamed in order for for us to to break free of the constraints it puts on on where we are so our ability to 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 travel um the second is, uh, is uh, as we call it, traversing the sea, which deals with uh, the sea as a, as a space to be uh, to be travelled upon with largely with goods, but also people, but basically transporting people from one trip, uh, place to another. And the final one is uh, the idea of the space, the the sea being a space that needs to be controlled or that can be controlled uh, for the extraction of resources that be. Uh, it could be fishing, it could be uh, oil, it could be any, any, any type of resource we find in the sea. So those are sort of three broad themes we think cover the ways in which the sea has been treated in more specialist literatures and which we believe form a good basis for uh, bringing the sea into the discipline in general.
2: Thank you for introducing them to us. Um, Halvard, I'm wondering if we can turn to you to talk a bit about um, obviously the task of an edited volume, choosing which chapters to include. Um, Can you explain that process a bit and maybe briefly introduce what they cover?
3: Yes, obviously. Um, For us, it was important that we were not trying to enforce our interpretation of the sea on the field of IR or a set of authors. So what we did is we identified a number of themes we thought would be of interest. And then we had a general call for papers for a workshop, which we held in Krakow before the pandemic. We had a, a massive number of people show everything. We had 25 different papers presented and of those 25, we uh, sort of made a, a, what we believe to be a representative sample. So this is sort of a bottom-up process in that, um, in a sense, this book serves as a, a uh, sort of collected items of, of what IR scholars engage with when they're um, challenged to engage with, with the sea uh, and thinking with the sea rather than just leaving the sea as something out there, so um, we chose these papers, trying to in the chapters that is trying to um, capture as much ground as possible, but also to have a diverse set of authors. We particularly wanted to highlight uh, younger scholars because we believe that a, uh, a lot of the interesting things that have been written about um, oceans and the sea come from people who haven't been necessarily uh, socialized into thinking about the sea as something which is just there to be traversed uh, or manipulated. So we have, we have an introduction, of course. Um, then we have three chapters, which are uh, tackling in different ways uh, the sea as a theoretical space. That's uh, Alex Colas, Maria Malxer, and Benjamin and myself in different ways, thinking about um, the sea in a material ways, the sea as uh, from a form of mythology, and in our case, uh, the questions of gender and race. Then we have two chapters, which are more specifically historical uh, by Mark Shirk and again by Benjamin and myself, dealing with uh, the production of boundaries at seas and the challenging of order at sea, Um, uh, boundary drawing through lines in the Atlantic and uh, privateering in Benjamin's in my case. Then we have four chapters dealing with more uh, current topics, uh, mobilities across the sea, uh, navigational technologies, uh, international law and the law of the sea convention, and, and fisheries by, by um, Andrea John Dixon, Jessica Simmons, Philippa Broru, and Kerry Gutlich respectively. And then Xavier Guillaume and Julia Costa Lopez uh, have written a, a wonderful concluding chapter on uh, a different way of thinking, what they call terracius relations, thinking about the world and the sea together. So that's the chapters and I think, I think they give a, a, a fairly good sampling of uh, what young and bright people ourselves excluded from that um, think of when we, you challenge them to think about the oceans and IR.
2: Thank you for introducing the chapters and explaining kind of the goal of it. Um, I think it helps us uh, as you say, take a number of different perspectives rather than just read a book and get one idea. Um, so I'd love to kind of go through some of these ideas. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to go into every chapter in the detail it probably deserves. Um, but to start with probably one of the big questions that we've talked a little bit about already, um, Benjamin, could you tell us more about why international relations as a discipline has ignored the
1: sea? I can try. I think, uh, I think the most obvious one is... Uh, that the sea today is a less experienced space than what it used to be i think that uh, we spend less time on the sea and our experience when we're on it or if we're on it is not as close to the elements as as it used to be i think the changes in technology have simply led to the fact that the sea uh, no longer figures as much as an, obst- uh, as an obstacle as what it used to be, and therefore has tended to be assumed to to just be there as something uh, less of a, a space in which something happened, in which we 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 sort of uh, th- that was a transformative experience. I think it's sort of become uh, simply a matter of uh, how much time we spent on spend on the sea. So in a sense, and I think we we say the introduction, we think that uh, space and time, or space have, has collapsed with time in our conception of the sea. We no longer think of it as uh, uh, a space in which something uh, uh, unplanned will happen. We just think of uh, how many days it will take for a ship to go from one place to another. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, if, uh, if a, a, a trip on, on the sea doesn't go as planned, it immediately creates a big story uh, because it's uh, it's sort of unexpected. I think there's a, there's a number of other reasons too. Um, probably that if you if you look at a map, the sea is uh, uh, assumed to be all the same everywhere; it's all blue. Well, uh, on land, you have a number of different colors: uh, yellows, pink, uh, green, blue. Uh, it's obvious, so to the eye, uh, that, that a lot of stuff is happening there between different states, uh, which isn't happening with the sea. And um, so I think in a sense, the sea has, has become this uh, sort of um, uh, the space, uh, this, this opposite space of, of, of land. And, and we're obviously quite landed creatures, we live on land. Uh, fewer of us uh, experience uh, working with the sea, uh, and I think this sort of correlates with uh, with um, what we've identified as sort of um, uh, central dichotomies in that that in, in in international relations have been used to conceptualize the turn from from uh, more traditional or medieval societies to to the modern age, where we see uh, the development on land as being key to uh, where we are today, uh, and we also see uh, our uh, our time as more than of a uh, time of states, as as opposed to the empires that were built sort of overseas. So we tend to forget what happens overseas. We tend to forget the sea, uh, and instead focus on what's closer to us uh, in in producing one conception of um, of politics. So I think that to the extent that the sea Hasn't been forgotten. It's figured there either as time, or simply as a corollary of land. It's just assumed to have the same qualities.
2: Thank you for that. Um, Halvard, is there anything you want to add?
3: Yes, I think um, two things. One of the things is one of the reasons why IR has been able to forget the sea is that, with the last two centuries, for better or worse, we've been living in a situation of naval hegemony. Uh, the sea hasn't really been contested. First, Britain, then the U.S. has uh, ruled the waves, and we're used to the sea being a place where sort of goods just travel. And you can see the, the reaction when something stops working like it should. Like, for instance, when there was piracy outside of Somalia led to a massive mobilization, and second, when the Ever Given sort of went on land in the Suez Canal and stopped the Suez Canal for a week. There was a massive uproar. People were so afraid that they couldn't get their iPads for Christmas during the uh, pandemic. So this sort of brings into sort of perspective what happens when we can no longer rely on the the sea as being this, this conveyor belt. And but, but I think in IR we have been used to thinking of the sea, it's just there. It's there's never any hassle with it, never any big hassle. So that's one thing. And the other thing not to forget is of course that international relations, if we disregard the geopolitical tradition and look mainly at the tradition of IR that was developed in in, in the North America after the Second World War, it was largely built by scholars coming out of uh, Central Europe, very concerned with Central European themes. And if you come out of Central Europe, there's a good reason why the oceans don't really figure in your theoretical frameworks. So those would be, would be my add-ons uh, to Benjamin's otherwise excellent comments.
2: Mm, thank you for that. Um Halvard, could I stay with you for a moment now that we have this idea of why it's why our IR has ignored the sea? Um, you mentioned briefly earlier, and of course, this is a key part of the book, the idea of rethinking international relations with the sea. Can you tell us what you mean by this?
3: Yes. Um, that is uh, sort of our way of squaring the circle, because in IR, as we've, I think, we can take as a good starting assumption there's been only scattered work on the sea. On the other hand, there is a tradition in other disciplines of moving toward people towards what people call a wet ontology or blue politics and really embracing the sea um, Our ambition is somewhere in between I think uh, there's a risk of sort of going into the different the, the, the other ditch if you're trying to sort of avoid, the excessive focus on land and turning to an excessive focus on the sea. I think we, we, we try to sort of have an, a terraqueous or amphibian project where we um, think I are with the sea, not as something separate from, but to understand in conjunction with. Um, we kind of disregard landed uh, politics when discussing the sea. As Benjamin said, we're landed creatures, we're bound to land. Uh, the water world of Kevin Costner's movie is a fantasy uh, and lucky, that's a lucky thing. But also when it comes to sort of thinking with the sea, it's a trying to capture um, sort of what Levi Strauss in his, uh, back in the day, thought of things that are good to think with. And I think oceans are good to think with because even though, they're not. You, we don't really discuss oceans in IR. You'll see the references to the flows and the streams and to waves. Those are sort of permeate analysis. There is something about moving water and the oceans which attracts metaphor and, and ways of of thinking. So we're not really we're trying in this in this book not to fall in the in the metaphor trap all the time. But it's easy because oceans are good to think with.
2: Hmm. Well, let's stay on that idea of thinking, um, metaphor, perhaps, and theory. Um, Benjamin, how does studying the sea through the lens of IR give us a better conception of political space, both in terms of the sea and also in general?
1: I think um, Howard touched upon some of this when he was t- he talked about Tarracius relations about the idea of, of of thinking of sea and land and their interplay. I think the obvious the obvious answer to that is that thinking uh, about the sea as a space uh, gives us a a whole conception of the globe rather than sort of seeing different different slices of it, and I think that. Uh, for obvious reasons, the sea is becoming, or the politics of the sea, are becoming more important today uh, than they have before. We're we're feeling the sea. Or a number of states are feeling the sea rise as a consequence of uh, of our politics or or lack thereof. Uh, at least as 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 a result of our activity on on land, uh, the question of pollution of the sea is. Uh, is uh, coming to the fore to an extent that it hasn't before. Uh, so I think that thinking of sea and land together uh, gives us a better better idea of how different aspects of space interplay with each other, uh, the extent to which uh, uh, land affects the sea and sea affects land. Uh, and uh, I think especially today, if, we, if we're if we looking at the challenges uh, we are, we're facing as, uh, uh, especially in terms of climate, we, we need to think about that interplay and, and understand politics of space as, as uh, something uh, radically different uh, than what uh, our tradition of thinking has done before. As Alrod was saying, you know, we, our, our tools are largely from an era when, when the sea uh, wasn't as, or perceived as, as important to the politics of land uh, so, so obviously, in terms of climate, I think there's uh, uh, thinking of sea and land uh, gives us a better way of conceptualizing the challenges we stand, uh, we face. If we look at uh, at developments, a uh, sort of more geopolitical developments, we also see that uh, 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 the distinction between land and sea, while being, I think, maintained in in, in, uh, in our ways of thinking, nevertheless, tends to kind of merge if we look at, at the activities of a number of states around the globe. China, for instance, is um, building uh, artificial islands as a way of controlling the sea, so they're creating land in order to control the sea. And I think that uh, this type of sort of spatial politics is something we, we can't really conceptualize unless we we think uh, of sea and land as as more of a continuum within which uh, a type of politics happens.
2: Hmm. I think that idea of um, kind of continuum and new things coming up is really helpful, and I think it's worth bringing together sort of two things that you both have mentioned so far, this idea that tools might have come from a less sea-oriented tradition and group of people, but also the idea of unchallenged um, or uncontested seas, that there has been such a domination by the British and then the Americans of the oceans. Um, And that has, in fact, created a conception of the sea. Um, You spoke about it a little bit at the beginning, kind of a thing that we can travel over, and maybe sometimes there's pirates to make it more interesting. Um, But we do have quite a strong traditional Western um, Anglo-American representation of the sea Halvard, can you tell us a bit about kind of how that influences IR and why we need to challenge this inherited belief?
3: Yes. Um, the thing is, it's always difficult to try to see yourself from the outside, right? I mean, we have grown up in the West and deeply influenced by this. I mean, if you read the Hornblower novels or if you read... Um, Master and Commander, or, or uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, whatever the sea is presented in that one specific way. But what we're trying to do is to to look at this from the outside, and we try to do this by by emphasizing uh, how the sea has been constructed in a in a Western tradition in terms of of gender and race. And um, if you look at the the oceans, they're typically um, both in sort of metaphor and in. Um, theology and in literature are typically given what we would call feminine traits. They're, they're um, associated with being unsteady, dangerous. Uh, typically, of uh, last century is also dark. So there is a, a sense in which the, the sea is opposed to land. Land is rational. Land is associated with all things masculine. Um, oceans typically uh, with things associated with femininity. Um, land associated also with things associated with, uh, in, in classical racial thinking, with white. Uh, sea with colored. So uh, and this leads to a sort of further corollary, really, really, namely that um, the sea is some it's a place where the white man goes to do things. The white man goes out to conquer. Uh, the white man is the one who has the ability to uh, navigate the oceans. Uh, this is ability that is sort of not available to anyone else now this is a a fairly strong trope in the western tradition uh, perhaps most explicit in the anglo-american tradition because again britain america has ruled the waves Um, there are some different ways of thinking about it of course you, you find in any dominant representation you'll also always find undercurrents i mean if you go to a classic like moby dick Um, The ocean is sometimes gendered male, sometimes female. Also, there is a respect in many of the engagements with the sea, which sort of constructs the sea as a worthy opponent. Um, So there are ways of mixing up this, but I think there's a dominant narrative of oceans being um, dangerous, oceans being treacherous, oceans being a place where manly men go to do their thing. And I think, why do we need to challenge this? First thing we need to challenge is because it's really, really bad history and anthropology and what what have you not. I mean, women have been at sea in groves. You just have to think for 20 seconds about all the women being shipped across the oceans as slaves. And you'll see that women have been at sea and people of color have been at sea. And we know that outside of the European sort of experience, Different people have gone to sea. Just think about sort of how Polynesia was populated and how this sort of Easter Island was populated. Of quite clearly other people have gone to sea. And other cultures and the Western have had different ways of thinking about the sea and who gets to interact with the sea. So this is bad history, bad anthropology, but I also think it's it has created or helped create this notion of the sea as a space to conquer, and some, something from where we can extract value. Um, now, this is, of course, not exclusive uh, Western or male um, ways of thinking about the world, but I think it's useful to upset them, it, because in, in the world where we're living, the, the challenges which we're facing when it comes to climate, when it comes to overfishing, when it comes to sort of conflicts over oceans, I think we need to uh, at least upset and challenge some of these uh, dominant representations of the sea to see if we can find better ways of engaging engaging with the oceans.
2: Hmm. Benjamin, is there anything you'd like to add about thinking about race and gender when bringing the sea into IR?
1: i think I think the the important thing here is uh, uh, questioning the ways in which dominant ways of thinking uh help maintain hegemonic structures. And I think that that both gender and and race give us a lens t- through which we can critically assess uh, the extent to which uh, our way of thinking about something as mundane as as the sea actually works towards a type of, of, of power politics uh, or maintain a specific type of, of domination now why we're thinking about that in a in a chapter i think um it was always part of the project that we would think about uh about gender and the sea uh to 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 some extent it's because uh, it's become part of a habitus of any project to to question these aspects when when conceiving of the project but as we we started working with the with um with a book, uh, it seemed to us that that these conceptions were especially important to question when it came to the sea because uh, as Halvard touched upon I mean they're so they're so important in uh, in creating a certain conception of the subject matter of the sea that they they need to be called out and I think you know especially because the sea as I mentioned initially the sea is not a lived space so it exists in our minds through the stories we tell and especially about the way we talk about the sea and uh that way as we we try to make clear in our chapter uh is not benign it uh it uh puts a, a number of things to the fore and the silences a number of other things um one one example i could mention is for instance the uh the number of women who who are at sea if you look at um at the the uh the official statistics uh, most i think most of the statistics are statistics are quite old on this but basically they will tell you that there isn't a single woman on on the sea but if you look at what forms the basis of those statistics um they fully ignore a large part of um, of the maritime industry which is uh, the cruise industry and ferries now if you take that into account of course there's not a majority of women at sea but still the number is not as as uh, as uh, the statistics uh, statistics would would have us believe initially a number the, there are a lot more women at sea than we think and uh, as Halvard was saying too the sea is much less of a of a space for masculinity than what uh, is very often assumed and i I think it's important to, to, to try to, to expose the way in which our discourses about this actually uh, contributes to to larger processes of power.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Thank you both for your thoughtful responses on that and the work you're doing to ensure that we do think about um, conceptions that may have been handed down and hopefully try and expand and improve them. Um, not related necessarily too much, but kind of this idea um, of expanding things that maybe we don't think a lot about. Halvard, I was wondering if you can tell us a bit more about privateering and how that particular example um, can help us when we try and bring the sea into international relations.
3: I'd love to. Privateering is, of course, what started us on this uh, oceanic adventure in the first place. I think privateering, help us bring together the sea and in international relations in a number of ways, and I'll, I'll start by pointing out two of them. Two central concerns in international relations. One traditional concern has been state building, and over the last uh, decades also empire building. And um, what privateering allows us to see is how what we refer to as the other states went to sea. Because when Europe starts expanding in the 15th, 16th centuries, Portugal and Spain go out and they get the papal um, acknowledgement of their right to uh, split the world in two, basically. Saying that Spain takes one half, Portugal takes the other. No one else is allowed um, to go really outside of European waters. So um, the French and the English and after a while the Dutch don't like this. They want part of the spoils. So... um, they send out privateers, which have the um, added benefit of giving you uh, plausible deniability. You send out a privateer and someone complains about his actions, and you can say, well, actually, I didn't mean him to do that, That and he wasn't sort of, that wasn't the plan, and he never got a letter saying he could do exactly that. It's not me, he did it on his own, while still when he returns to Britain or France or whatever, um, you ennoble him and you share in the spoils. Uh, So, privateering is part of what breaks the sea open, which allows for uh, England and France and the Dutch to actually uh, engage with the rest of the world, uh, rather than sitting at home and waiting for Spain and Portugal to take home the goods. And the money that comes in from this is crucial when it comes to state building in, in Northern Europe. It's also crucial when it comes to empire building. Take, for instance, the Dutch East India Company, which in its heyday was probably the largest company in the world. The initial funds that sort of drove that in its first couple of decades came from privateering uh, in the Indian Ocean, directed primarily against the Portuguese. Likewise, the French and British, uh, part of the fortunes that sort of sparked their colonial ventures into the Caribbean and North America was built on money coming in from privateering. So privateering helps building stronger states in Northern Europe and also enables empire building in the colonies. Now fast forward a while and and empires become, the no, no, privateers become also a tool in the destruction of empires because uh, when the American um, colonies decide to rebel, they don't have a navy, but they need to engage with the British on sea so they raise privateers. Privateers are crucial in making it possible for French troops to get to America and to sort of eventually win the war for for North for the United States. And then some decades later, uh, the Spanish colonies have learned a lesson when they try to break free from Spain. They recruit English, French and other privateers to fight for them. So what we're seeing really is privateers are tying together state building, the creation of new states, the building of empires, the destruction of empires. Um, So they're really key to the understanding of the building blocks of international relations. They're also key in really showing us how international relations became systemic in that these uh, states and empires started bumping into one another across the globe and often in the form of privateers. So we think that really privateering helps us understand uh, and tie together the sea in international relations in ways in which really uh, no other uh, single
1: practice can do.
2: Benjamin, is there anything you'd like to add?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, once you get us started on the question of privateering, there's no stopping us. <laughs> Uh, I, I I think that that in uh, in the interest of our our listeners here, it's it's important to to maybe make clear what we think by privateering, because obviously it's an it's an activity that uh, took place from in a number of number of uh, regions and uh, privateers came from a number of states, and they were called a number of things. They were called corsairs, corsarios, um, uh, uh, just as uh, I think. Uh, uh, actors engaging in in maritime predation have taken a number of uh, guises and and have been given a number of names too. I mean, some were called buccaneers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What we mean by by privateering, of course, privateering is rather anachronistic because it's a an analytic term we impose on our subject matter uh, from the fifteen hundreds and onwards, while the term itself came only in circulation sort of late sixteen uh, hundreds. Essentially, we mean uh, maritime predation uh, under sovereign license. So there were um, ships that were able to engage in uh, in uh, plunder at sea, uh, sanctioned by a sovereign. This is quite different from piracy, which involved uh, plunder to uh, court. Uh, Now to some people, this doesn't matter because in, in practice, sometimes the distinction wasn't as uh, clear cut as what we wanted to be analytically yet. I think to the people who were facing either privateers or pirates, it mattered a great deal because essentially if you were, if you were attacked by a privateering vessel, you probably wouldn't uh, lose your life. Whereas you were guaranteed to, if you met pirates, um, it's also important because uh, it, it places privateering uh, entirely different, uh, in a different space when it comes to how uh, European states uh, interacted with the rest of the world. As Halvard said, it ties it to empire building um, because a number of states were not uh, allowed to go to sea initially. As you'll remember, the Treaty of Tordesillas uh, divided up the known seas between the two uh, Iberian powers, Spain and Portugal. And uh, Northern Europe was not allowed to, to engage in that activity. And so, as Albert mentioned, the issue of plausible deniability was key. But it was. I think that uh, just as we can say that uh, for the the Vikings, the type of ship was crucial for for the sort of Viking plundering activity, then the the privateer, uh, the concept of what a privateer was, was crucial to the states engaging in activities through these these agents because it allowed them to to plunder other ships, to pose a threat to the Iberian bowers, but it also allowed them to trade with the colonies, something they weren't allowed to. It also allowed them to trade between the different colonies and often not even their own colonies, but for instance, those of the Spanish. So the privateer would go there and try to attack Spanish shipping, but they would also try to sell the goods that they captured uh, and enter into all kinds of interactions with Different uh, parts of different empires. Uh, in that sense, the, the 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 idea of privateering breaks down what we often see as a dichotomy between war and trade, or plunder and trade. And I think it's important because it also breaks down a number of other dichotomies. I think that we uh, I mentioned two earlier the be dichotomy between sea and land. Of course, they were they were ships, but they engaged as much in activity with the. Uh, on land, as they did at sea, uh, they were agents of states, but they also built empires. In that sense, they they break down the the dichotomy between state and empire. They also break down this idea that we have that the distinction between public and private was crucial in the making of modernity. Uh, these were not sort of fully private uh, actors. They were. As I mentioned, operating under sovereign license, and often funded by by uh, by public uh, authorities as well, and so all these we have this idea that the modern world emerged as we sort of as a result of moving away from uh, one thing to another and creating these these clear cut dichotomies between us and our past, and looking at change through the institutional privateering questions those dichotomies and makes the move. Uh, less of a clear-cut move than the process of gradual and often not unilinear change. So in that sense, I think privateering is especially important. It also accounts for one of the sort of more important shifts we've ever seen globally. I mean, I, I mentioned uh, the Iberian powers allowed to to deal with the sea by the Treaty of Tordesillas. If you look at the world two, two or three centuries after Tordesillas, um uh, the spanish and the portuguese empires are no longer the empires that uh, that they were instead we have france england and the the netherlands dominating the globe in in different ways and uh well i think we need to stay clear of sort of um single explanations here um it's uh, in our mind at least it's clear that 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 the institution of privateering played a big part in explaining that power shift. So we're not claiming that we're uh, we have a new uh, explanation supplanting Max Weber's uh, Protestant ethic here to explain the move from Southern Europe to Northern Europe, but still, it's another process that sort of uh, tries to tackle that that long pro- uh, change that happened over time.
2: Well, clearly the two of you remain very excited about investigating and explaining privateering. Um, And one of the things that I particularly appreciated about the book, and you've mentioned it earlier on, is um, the idea that this is not meant to be the only book that ever talks about the sea in international relations or the only way to think about it um and in a lot of ways kind of opens us up for more work and more conversations um so perhaps not so much about the two of your work because i'm gonna ask about that separately um but with this book kind of out there with the people um involved with interesting ideas and hopefully more once people more people read the book um i was wondering if either of you, maybe Benjamin, you could start us off, um, could tell us about some of the areas you're most excited about seeing further explored kind of now that we're having this conversation.
1: Absolutely. I think that um, what we try to do with this book is really open, opening up a conversation about the sea. And we're really hoping that a number of uh, people will (laughs) read it, engage with it, it, criticize us, uh, come up with new ideas. Um, I think the uh, one of the ways in which we hope to to see some changes is obviously in in trying to incorporate the sea more into our thinking about international relations in general and uh, uh, we we touch a bit upon it in the book we also sort of clearly emphasize that this is an important aspect which we would like to see more of happening in the future I think that what we need to do is try to increasingly bring together people from different disciplines who think about the sea and uh, help them think with international relations about how land and sea uh, together are important for, for tackling the, the challenges which we we face today. Another thing which I, I, I hope we'll see more of is uh, attempt at conceptualizing the sea Uh, without the vocabulary which we've developed to deal with land. I'll give you one example. For instance, um, I mentioned these artificial islands that China is building now. Um, One way people have have described this is as if China is uh, territorializing the sea they So they're using the concept of territory, which is terra and orium, meaning the land that belongs to someone. Traditionally, it's understood as produced by sovereignty. So states are uh, being sovereign. They produce, they turn land into territory. That's sort of the understanding we'll get from, from geographers. But applying that to the sea, I think, is problematic. So territorializing the sea, in a sense uh I wouldn't say that it's a contradiction, but it's certainly using concepts which don't fully account for the for the, the what we're seeing in practice. And so I've I've seen a few authors using the correlated concept of aquatory, so taking water and the Latin Orium, so territory versus aquatory uh as a way of developing new concepts that can better grasp uh, the activity going on but also help us in uh, distinguishing between these two spaces so that this the sea doesn't stay this forgotten space but instead sort of becomes alive with different concepts that interact with ways we're used to thinking about uh we're Working on uh, on a related project now, um, which is run out of uh, Copenhagen and led by um, uh, Christian Büger, who's been work- doing a number of of um, engagements with the sea uh, about ocean infrastructures. So the idea there is to sort of look at how uh, quite ports, but also uh, we're writing about how. Uh, treaties and, and and law in general maybe creates a type of infrastructure upon which we build our understandings of the world and so 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 looking at ways in which i think these sort of large structures produced by our way of thinking about the sea generate our understanding of the of the global i think is uh is uh, one way in which uh I think, or an area in which I think there's a, there's a the, an area in which I think there's a lot to 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 find out.
2: Halbert, is there anything you'd like to add about things you're excited to see others do, or things that either or both of you are working on next?
3: Yes, to start with, what I think would be interesting to see is, is, is I mean, again, we were only sort of um, making a first. Well, I shouldn't say dig at this because we should have a a, 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 a metaphor from the sea. We were just taking this sort of the the first leap into the water to put it like that. I think uh, there is still work to be done when it comes to um, theorizing the sea um, and just theorize the sea with land. I think there is a tendency to think. Um, We have examples of different ways of of theorizing the sea in our book, but I think there's a need for synthesizing some of the materialist and the ideationalist analysis to see if they can work together rather than on parallel tracks. That would be of great interest, I think, and it might be what opens up for better thinking about the sea uh, in, uh, in international relations and international relations with the sea. Uh, for, the, for the stuff that we've been working on. I think our chapter on gender and race is quite explicitly only a first step. We're trying to bring some of the literature from other disciplines in closer contact with IR. We're not p- pretending to do a sort of uh, fully feminist or, or, or post-colonial study of, of, uh, of the sea. We're just trying to show that there's a lot of stuff to be done. I hope that others in IR continue to do this because there's a lot of interesting work in geography and anthropology uh, but not necessarily tackling the kinds of questions that IR tend to ask, sort of bigger macro questions. When it comes to the historical work, I would love to see some of the work being done in international history about uh, the international slave trade, the oceanic slave trade uh, brought into contact with IR. I think it's uh, almost absurd that we don't have a great big projects on IR and slave trade. We have excellent people working on slavery in, uh, in the world, also coming out of IR, but for some reason, it hasn't been a big topic or as big as it should be in historical international relations. Finally, I think there's a... a we hope that the current affairs chapters in our book uh, open up for ways in which people can come out of their silos when thinking about uh, topics. I mean, we want these... When people deal with topics of the sea, in IR, they typically do it in these small silos where they're thinking about the Arctic or some other region, or it's fisheries, or some some very specific either sort of area studies topic or um, one specific form of resource kind of topic or negotiations. I would love to see these current affairs being brought more broadly into um, the overall IR conversations, be they on security policy, on Global economics, on on um, global ethics, or, or what have you. So that's where I sort of hope people will. Uh, I hope our work can be the, some inspiration. Um, we couldn't possibly follow all these these uh, trajectories ourselves, um, but we are working on what Benjamin referred to a, 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 a with a group in Copenhagen on uh, infrastructures and and um, and the sea. We're also, as part of the Emprise project, um, uh, in the process of writing uh, a book about uh, privateers, which uh, (laughs) shows you why we have so much to say about privateers (laughs) and why you can invite (laughs) us back in two years' time to have a long conversation about all the bases we didn't cover today about privateers. And uh, a little further down the line, there will be a book. on Empires as the third part of the trilogy coming out of the Empire project. Um, we're also working on other re- more or less related projects, but uh, those are the ones that have, um closest to the top of the agenda from my point of view.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you both for um, sharing the many different strands. Uh, I think they're, this book very much is opening and inviting people into a conversation. So I hope to see uh, many, if not all of those strands picked up by who knows who um, and have many conversations going forward. Um, and Halvard, you're exactly right. When the both of you have the privateering book published, uh, we will have you back and you'll tell us even more about privateers. Um, but in the meantime, of course, the book that we've mainly been talking about is called, quite straightforwardly, The Sea in International Relations. Um, it's just out from Manchester University Press. So if any listeners want to go check it out, um, you can join uh, the conversation and thinking about the sea and in international relations there. Halvard and Benjamin, thank you so much for sharing your time, insights, and expertise with us.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, it was a pleasure.